previously on Flying the Line. Alpa advocates on behalf of having three pilots working on the flight deck of the new airliners of the post-World War II era. But accidents and pilot pranks do little to help the cause. All while one airline's pilots mull over leaving the association. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 17, Safety and Crew Complement in the 1950s, Part Two. Captain Charles Sisto of American Airlines was riding in the jump seat of a DC-4 en route to the West Coast from Texas. As a joke, Sisto engaged the Gustlock. Captain Jack Beck and co-pilot Mel Logan, who were the pilots on the flight, weren't aware of the prank and continued to make trim corrections and attributed the strange behavior to either the movement of passengers in the main cabin or the handling characteristics of the aircraft itself. When Sisto felt that the joke had gone far enough, he acted to reverse the prank. But when he disengaged the gust lock, the unusual trim tab settings caused the DC-4 to nose over inverted into an outside loop. Luckily, Jack Beck's seatbelt was loose, so when the force of the DC-4's downward tuck slammed him into the cockpit roof, Beck accidentally feathered three of the four engines, thus averting a power-on dive. Co-pilot Logan's quick thinking saved them. The control pressures were too high to move the elevators, but the ailerons were working. So just as the DC-4 reached the horizontal plane of its outside loop, he rolled the plane upright, and they screamed along above red line limits 400 feet over the West Texas desert. Sisto's career as an airline pilot was over. Although to the puzzlement of many pilots, Banky defended him to the bitter end, citing that it all could have been averted had the DC-4 been equipped with a properly designed gust lock system. So had it not been for the courage of Captain McMillan and co-pilot Greisbeck, who managed to radio enough clues to allow investigators to pinpoint the cause of the mysterious fatal fires aboard the DC-6, the Civil Aeronautics Board probably would have once again fixed pilot error as the cause of a series of unexplained crashes. The Sisto case certainly pointed to that, as did the crash of a non-scheduled Burke Air Transport DC-3 in July 1947. The investigators found the Miami-based airline's two pilots had been airborne for 23 hours during the previous 37, and that the crash almost certainly occurred because both exhausted pilots were asleep. In actuality, this incident was more a case of the CAB's lax supervision of non-scheduled airline operations than of pilot incompetence, but the public did not see it that way. In his testimony, before yet another federal board investigating safety, Banky told the so-called Finletter Commission, which was a blue-ribbon panel appointed by Truman to look into aviation, 
that the pilots had become scapegoats. He savagely attacked the CAB's investigation of accidents and recommended the firing of CAB Chairman James Landis, who was then heading the full investigation of air safety. Banky kept pounding away, defending any and every pilot, including the unfortunate Sisto. Luckily for Alpa in the industry, the DC-6 that landed safely with a baggage compartment fire in New Mexico diffused a growing sentiment to institute far more rigorous supervision of pilots and to make their dismissal easier. A study made by the CAB of the working habits of 240 airline pilots was also troubling. The CAB employed professional psychologists who tried to find out what kind of man made a safe pilot. Banky denounced the study, vowing never again to allow attempts to make ALPA members guinea pigs for psychological careerists. The pattern of blaming the pilot for crashes was reasserting itself with a vengeance, and had it not been for strong ALPA political pressure, it might have worsened. Exerting every ounce of political influence, Banky sought the firing of CAB Chairman Landis. Landis had been noncommittal about the idea of a third crewman in four-engine aircraft, but ALPA regarded it as crucial in improving air safety. Admittedly, Landis had other enemies besides ALPA. Airline management was angry with him because he was frugal with subsidies and because he favored an early form of deregulation that would permit non-scheduled airlines to compete more directly with the scheduled airlines. Against this Landis proposal, Banky and the airlines could make a common cause, for the non-SCEDs were almost totally non-ALPA. Banky's steady drumfire of criticism took its toll. For ALPA, the December 1947 emergency grounding of all DC-6s proved that pilots were not the only problem, as the Landis-approved psychological study had seemed to argue. In 1948, Truman reacted to the mounting criticism of Landis by curtly refusing to reappoint him to another term. This step was unusual because Landis was a Truman appointee and a protege of the powerful Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., father of future President John F. Kennedy. Ironically, Banky and Landis patched up their differences, and Landis became one of the principal architects of the victory over Ted Baker during the National Airlines strike of 1948. After a long absence from aviation when he became an important financial advisor to the Kennedy family, Landis would reemerge in 1960 to challenge Clarence Sayan for ALPA's presidency. After Landis's departure from CAB, ALPA policy solidified in favor of the three crewman concept for all four engine aircraft. After a series of hearings in early 1948, CAB ruled that a flight engineer would be mandatory on all aircraft certificated for more than 80,000 pounds maximum gross takeoff weight and on all other four-engine aircraft certificated for more than 30,000 pounds where the administrator has found that the design of the aircraft or the type of the operation 
is such as to require it for safe operations. This mandate was exclusive of where there was a specific crew station for the flight engineer or not. The Lockheed Constellation series had such a crew station, but the Douglas series did not, which had put Lockheed at a serious economic disadvantage in the competition for domestic orders. The CAB's ruling left the nature of the flight engineer's qualifications completely up to each airline, subject only to the vague licensing Civil Aeronautics Authority had issued in March 1947 when it granted the first flight engineer certificate. ALPA regarded the April 1948 CAB ruling as a great victory for safety, not for feather bedding or the practice of artificially creating pilot jobs, as American Airlines President C.R. Smith contended. American Airlines fought the CAB ruling to the bitter end, challenging it through a lengthy series of hearings and arguing that there was nothing whatsoever for a third man in the cockpit of a DC-6 to do and that he could only get in the way. Other airlines began complying at once as soon as the DC-6 was returned to service after major modifications. There was, however, no agreement among them as to whether the flight engineers should be pilots or mechanics. Some, like Delta Airlines, employed only pilots from the beginning, but others, like Chicago and Southern, employed only ex-mechanics. United Airlines got the worst of both worlds, when Pat Patterson decided to employ both pilots and mechanics. To qualify as a pilot flight engineer at United, an applicant had to have 500 hours of pilot time, a commercial license with an instrument rating, and of course, a flight engineer certificate. The company had no difficulty qualifying pilot flight engineers under the provisions of 1947 regulations. In a change of titles that ALPA would subsequently copy, United Airlines also decreed that henceforth, co-pilots would be known as first officers and flight engineers would be called second officers, thus eliminating semantic distinction that might further muddy the waters. The scene was now set for conflict with FEIA during the 1950s over the twin problems of the second officer qualifications and a rival union's right to represent them. This cross would become Clarence Sayans to bear. It undermined support for him among pilots who were particularly strong in their support of Brother Airmen. This disaffection was particularly evident with the pilots of American Airlines. They thought Sayan was misleading management to the effect that they might settle for something less than they wanted in exchange for a deal on crew complement. Aside from Sayan's problems with some pilots, which might have well been due more to personality than policy, the troublesome conflict with FEIA remained. A jurisdictional dispute between two unions is always messy and historically, there are seldom any clear winners. In this case, ALPA won the fight with FEIA, but it was so bloody that it didn't feel like a victory at all. If not for ALPA itself, 
than at least for Clarence Sayan. Put simply, FEIA had to be controlled, and Sayan had to do it. With the competing union in the cockpit, the captain's authority could always be directly challenged in theory, and it frequently was in practice. Armed with a complicated series of work rules and engineering performance charts, an element within FEIA set out to establish the professional flight engineer as a co-equal force in the cockpit. Of course, this element did not include every non-pilot flight engineer, but it included enough of FEIA's leadership to alarm thoughtful ALPA members. Sayan's great burden was that he had to confront the FEIA leadership head-on to establish firmly ALPA's primacy in the cockpit. Many pilots who had worked side-by-side with non-pilot flight engineers never understood the true nature of the FEIA leadership's challenge, and they resented what they regarded as Saiyan's portrayal of fraternal co-workers and their union. This was particularly true with the pilots of American Airlines and constituted a major weapon in the hands of the anti-Saiyan element there. Since the early 1950s, the crew complement issue has confronted every ALPA president from Banky to J.J. O'Donnell. The cornerstone of ALPA's policy was laid in 1954 when the board of directors mandated that the third crew member, regardless of function, ought to have a commercial pilot's license. It stood to reason, the board believed, that people working in the cockpit ought to be fully cognizant of the nature of the pilot's work. The goal, of course, was to make the flight deck fail safe as humanly possible. Although this policy did indeed have some adverse impact on FEIA, ALPA never adopted measures that specifically eliminated the competing union from the cockpit. But ALPA was determined in the interest of safety that regardless of previous experience, the flight engineer must be able to take over temporarily for another crew member. As ALPA conceived the policy, it would also be a superb training device, allowing junior pilots to handle the controls regularly while serving primarily as flight engineers. At American Airlines, C.R. Smith's resistance, with the help of the pilot group's leadership, meant that to be the first airline to operate the Boeing 707 domestically, there were briefly four crewmen aboard instead of three. Three pilots plus a non-pilot flight engineer who was a member of FEIA. FEIA resisted cooperating with ALPA in any way, even denying its members the right to take flight instruction paid for by the company, which was ALPA's policy. According to Eastern Airlines pilot Jerry Wood, ALPA wanted to have three pilots on the plane and get the flight engineers qualified as pilots. But FEIA's leader, Jack Robertson, was a lot like Banky and that once he got an idea into his head, there was no way you could talk him out of it. Eastern Airlines employed 500 non-pilot flight engineers, but Robertson called upon them to strike in 1958 for 38 days. In the end, 
the flight engineers broke, and eventually 104 of them came back to work with the company, paying for every penny of their flight training. Jerry Wood served on the 1956 Turboprop and Jet Study Committee, and he personally wrote every word of the crew compliment section of the report. Having been more or less continuously involved with the issue since 1947. The hidden tragedy of the crew compliment issue is the effect it had on Clancy Sayan. He was a dogged administrator, and he always carried out the mandates the pilots gave to him to the fullest extent of his abilities. He never complained about the implementation of an ALPA policy once the board mandated it no matter how much he might have disagreed with the policy personally. Perhaps it was premonition that made Sayan oppose the mandatory crew complement policy. Eventually, it indirectly cost him his job. Alba's crew complement policy was the rock upon which the dissident pilots of American Airlines built their secession from Alba in 1963 and they made Sayan's life so difficult that he resigned Alpa's presidency in 1962. And what happened to the hundreds of professional flight engineers who declined flight training and persisted in the FEIA's fruitless strikes against the Alpa crew complement policy at several airlines? They picketed for about two years, according to Jerry Wood. Eventually, they lost their cases in court, and the companies trained pilots to fill their jobs. In short order, a group of ALPA pilots at Southern Airways would be in a similar predicament, staking everything on the judicial process. It was a troubling episode, with ramifications extending far beyond the question of whether a hundred-odd airline pilots would keep their jobs and be paid a decent wage. Next time on Flying the Line, not all airline owners found common ground with their pilots, and the owner of Southern Airways attempts to place profit over his pilots. Striking to protect their pay, Southern's pilots resorted to unorthodox and inventive methods to make their case to the flying public. Thank you for listening. This has been part two of chapter 17 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright Alpa 2020. All rights reserved.